12, you know, as we've been studying through the Gospel of John, last week in John 11, we got to read how Jesus did one of the most amazing miracles where he raised Lazarus back to life after he'd been dead and buried for four days already. Mary and Martha, who were the sisters of Lazarus, they came to Jesus when he finally made it there to Bethany, and they said, man, if only you had been here, if only you had been here, then he wouldn't have died. You could have healed him. But we saw last week, there it was, we saw last week how Jesus, he never is late. He has his own timetable, right? He was right on time because Jesus wanted to perform the miracle of raising Lazarus back to life after four days of burial, just magnifying the the amazing uh, part of that work. Now, because Lazarus Lazarus was raised back to life, it caused such a stir among the people, and so many people began to believe in Jesus because of that miracle, that the Pharisees began to openly plot Jesus' death. Look with me back at John chapter 11, verses 47 and 48. It says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And so we see here, this is a key verse because we understand the fear and the thoughts behind the chief priests and Pharisees. It wasn't just that they didn't like Jesus, it's that there was a political issue there. They were afraid that if the people turned after Jesus and there was a a stirring up, a revolt that occurred, then the Romans would throw down and, and put down their foot. And ultimately, the chief priests and Pharisees would, re, would lose their place of authority, their place of comfort, and a lot of their religious freedoms. You know, at this point, Rome was over Israel, but they still had some limited freedom. So long as they did what they were told and they paid their heavy taxes to Rome, they still had some freedom. So, for the Pharisees, they saw Jesus as a threat to God's people and nation, when in reality God, the Son, had come to rescue his people. So as we'll see, the Pharisees had an earthly and limited perspective that resulted in fear and murder of Jesus as they attempted to keep things the way they were. Chapter 11 ended with the Pharisees and chief priests issuing an official warrant for Jesus' arrest. And that brings us to John chapter 12 and verses 1 through 11 we read about dinner with a dead man. Verse 1, it says, Then six days before Passover. So pause, freeze right there. Six days before Passover. This is the final week of Jesus' life. The rest of the Gospel of John all takes place during these next six days. And so, here we go. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Notice that between the three siblings here, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, they each are doing something different. For Jesus. 
We notice, and these are your first fill-in-the-blanks on your note sheet, Martha served Jesus and the others during the mealtime. Martha served Jesus. Lazarus, he testified of Jesus. By simply being there, he was a living testimony. We later read in verse 9 how many people were coming to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, to see the evidence of a man who was dead and is now back to life. The evidence of that miracle. And third, Mary worshipped Jesus as she sacrificed the costly perfume and honored Jesus. All of these are great things, and each of them performing a vital role of every Christian, serving, testifying, and worshiping. We remember back in Luke chapter 10, when Martha complained about her sister, Mary, who was sitting there at the feet of Jesus as Jesus taught, and Martha was there serving. She complained about her sister because her sister wasn't helping her out. And yet here, Martha is once again serving, but we note a change. Martha's no longer worried about the other things. She's no longer distracted as she's trying to serve, looking at what she's trying to do and what other people aren't doing. But here, Martha, she's serving Jesus and the others with joy. Good for her. She learned her lesson. She's focused on Jesus as she serves, no longer focused on others as she serves. And I want to be like that. When I serve Jesus, I don't want to be concerned with what other people are doing or are not doing. I want to be concerned with Jesus and my service to Him. When Lazarus testified of Jesus, we note that he didn't have to use his words. People wanted to see the change in him as he went from death to life. And isn't that what people need to see in us? As we testify of Jesus, they need to be able to see the change in our lives, the change of us believing in Jesus and then changing our relationship with Him and how we now are more like Him and less like our flesh. What amazes me about Mary, Martha's sister, is that every time Scripture mentions Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. In that story in Luke chapter 10 where Martha was complaining about Mary, we read Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Then last week we read in John chapter 11 when Mary came to Jesus when he got to Bethany. It says, Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet. And here again today in John chapter 12, she falls down at Jesus' feet once more, anointing him with this costly oil and wiping her, his feet with her hair. I love that example. Three times she's mentioned in the Bible, and three times she's at the feet of Jesus. And to me, that just paints a perfect picture that Mary believed everything she needed was going to come from Jesus. Isn't that the heart that we need to have? All of our needs come from Jesus. He's our supplier. And so Mary, she poured out this costly oil as an act of worship to Jesus. But, verse 4, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This oil that Mary poured out was equivalent to almost a full year's wages. It's a lot of money. That's some expensive stuff. 
And yet she poured it all out onto Jesus. And Judas complained. He says, this gift could have been sold and it could have been used for so many practical needs. So many people could have used this. But Judas wasn't worried about practicality. He was worried about profit. Look at verse 6. It says, then he said, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put into it. Judas, before he betrayed Jesus, he was stealing from the money box. And he complained because he missed the opportunity to steal from such a large sum of money. Verse 7, But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you will have with you always, but me you do not have always. So Jesus defends her actions, essentially saying, she's not always going to have the opportunity to worship me in person on this side of eternity. Leave her alone. What she did was good. In fact, Jesus loved Mary's act of worship so much that we read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 13, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. That's amazing. Clearly, Jesus appreciated that act of true worship, and she would be remembered forever. And through this act, we see your next uh, fill-in-the-blank. True worship is from the heart, not the head. True worship is from the heart, not the head. You see, true worship can seem impractical, but it is always genuine. From a practical standpoint, our worship service every Sunday morning would sound a lot better if some of us didn't sing, right? You know who you are. We know who you are, and I'm one of them, okay? That's why when when I have worship playing, I need to turn it up to the point where I can't hear myself because it ruins it. But then if I turn it up loud enough, I can sing as loud as I want, and I can't hear myself, and I can enjoy it. You see, true worship isn't about being practical. True worship comes from our heart. It's an expression of our love and gratitude to our Savior, to our Lord. And that's what we see Mary doing here. God doesn't care about the quality of our singing, but the quality of our heart. We read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at our heart. When we worship Him, when we're singing, when we're serving, whatever we're doing, God looks at our heart. I know if if you're like me, you're so tempted to look at the quality. You say, well, I tried to do this for this person. I, I, I tried to share the gospel and invite him to church, but... I don't think I did a very good job. I don't think I I worded it right. I'm pretty sure I had some blasphemy in there. I'm just no good. And Jesus says, your heart was golden. That's all he cares about. He cares about our heart. Now back to our text in verse 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. How sad that the chief priests, who were so blinded by their self-righteousness, so fearful of Rome, taking away their place in authority and comfort, that these chief priests who were supposed to represent the connection between the people and their God, they said, we need to put Jesus to death and we need to kill Lazarus too. We need to put him back to the grave because too many people are believing in Jesus. How backwards is their thinking? And as we look at this, obviously we know they weren't thinking clearly. If they were thinking clearly then we know that they would have seen the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus back to life and they would have said, okay, I need to take a time out and I might need to get on my knees before the Lord here because this is amazing. If they were thinking clearly, then at the very least, these leaders should have been afraid to kill Lazarus because Jesus just might raise him back to life again. And wouldn't that be an even bigger problem for the chief priests and the Pharisees? Look with me now at verses 12 through 19. We read about the triumphal entry. Verse 12, the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast. So again, pause, freeze. This great multitude came to the feast because the feast of Passover was where Jews from all over the Roman Empire would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate God's salvation of saving the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. And they would take lambs and they would sacrifice them and it would all be remembering God's salvation for His people and ultimately looking forward to God's ultimate salvation, which is Jesus. And so, at this point, this multitude consisted of Jews from all over coming back to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 12, When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet Him. And they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The people welcomed and celebrated Jesus as he entered the city of Jerusalem. However, their focus was on a political kingdom rather than a spiritual kingdom. You see, from the time of the Maccabees and and what the celebration of Hanukkah remembers, the palm branch was a symbol of Jewish nationalism. It would be like if we had, you know, pictures of eagles and the American flag. That's what the palm branch represented for Israel. That's why they had those branches. They cried out, Hosanna, which means save now, but notice they called Jesus the King of Israel. They were celebrating Jesus as King of a nation rather than King of glory. The Jews believed their problem was Rome and their solution was Jesus, their new warrior King of Israel. Yet Jesus knew their real problem was sin and His solution was death on a cross. Church, can we just pause for a moment here and during our extremely political time that we are in, can we remember the problem is sin and the solution is the gospel? That is what we need to remember. The real problem is sin and the solution is the gospel. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you, you should not vote. You should vote. Please vote. But during this time, no matter what happens, no matter who's elected, no matter which party is ruling and reigning, they're not really. Jesus is ruling and reigning. 
And we need to see the gospel change lives, not politics. And that is our hope. As we look at our world, we need to remember not to get divided on non-essential issues. Jesus is what brings us together. And may we remain united in the name of Jesus. And think about it. The Lord chose you and I to be here on the earth during this time, during this cursed year of 2020. What a privilege it is to have the opportunity to represent Jesus during this time. So let's do that. Let's represent the Lord together. Look at verse 14. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So Jesus rode on a young colt to fulfill messianic prophecy. Now there's two fascinating things about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem here. Aside from the palm branches and the worship and the hosanna, all of that, two things I want to point out. First of all, this day was prophesied by Daniel almost 500 years prior. And Daniel didn't just prophesy that the Messiah would come and be revealed, but he prophesied that the Messiah would be cut off 500 years in advance. Love that. The second fascinating thing about the Passover feast and Jesus coming into Jerusalem at this time is that for the Jews, they were commanded in Exodus, when they celebrated the Passover, they had to select their lamb for the sacrifice four days before the feast. And that lamb would then live with the family for those days until it was finally slain and cooked and, and, and eaten. And so, as Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, these few days before Passover, there's going to be a quarter of a million sheep herded into the city for all of the, the families of Israel need to select which sheep they want to take that's going to represent God's salvation to them. And in the midst of that, in the midst of all of the, the lambs and the sheep coming into the city, we have the Lamb of God who's coming in to Jerusalem. And sadly, many of these families, as they're choosing their Lamb that represents God's salvation, they missed out on the opportunity to select Jesus who is their salvation the Lamb of God. And so, verse 17, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. So as they bore witness of Jesus' miracle, the crowds came to see Jesus, but again, their hope was more along the lines of, well, if he can raise a dead man back to life, then surely he can defeat Rome. Surely he can rescue our nation so that we can be truly free once again. That was their attitude. That was their perspective. Verse 19, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Remember, they were trying to arrest Jesus and prevent the crowds from following him. So they're rebuking each other. They say, well, a lot of good our plan's doing. Look, everybody's following him. Everybody's worshiping him. They're crying out to him. Hosanna. And now in verses 20 through 36, we read how Jesus looks to the cross. 
Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. These were Gentiles, non-Jews, and yet they came to Jerusalem to worship God during this time. Then, verse 21, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. It seems like there was such a crowd trying to see Jesus that the disciples were acting as crowd control. Verse 23, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What is he talking about? What's going to happen to Jesus in just a few days? Help me out. His crucifixion, the cross, that's right. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Jesus says, now is the hour. It's finally come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's going to be glorified in His death. Doesn't that seem backwards? Jesus is saying that the climax of His coming to the earth, it was not His birth in a manger. It wasn't His worship from the wise men. It wasn't the ministry of His teaching, nor the ministry of His miracles. He says, the culmination of My coming is the cross on Calvary. This means the most important view of Jesus is in light of His death, burial, and resurrection. The most important view of Jesus is in light of His death, burial, and resurrection. Looking to Jesus apart from the cross is like introducing Michael Jordan as a double-A baseball player. Well, yeah, he, he played some double-A ball, but... That's not who he is, right? We know him because he's a basketball player. Six championships. And yet when we look to Jesus as just a good teacher, a good moral example, he's, he's perhaps even an angel, some say. Those all fall short of who Jesus is and why he came. It's fascinating to me that as we think about God's original creation, in the Garden of Eden, there was no death until after sin came, right? So God's original plan was no death. But He brought death because sin came. And when Jesus, God the Son, comes to the earth, the climax and purpose of Him coming is Him dying on the cross. To me, that's so amazing and fascinating that Jesus would come and partake in what was never meant to be. It was never part of the original creation. And yet He was willing to die on a cross for you and for me. Why would He do that? That's His whole purpose. That's the reason that He came. And He says, this is my glorification. Then He continues in verse 24. Jesus says, most assuredly I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. You see, Jesus, in His death, He produced a great harvest. From all over the world, spanning across the span of time, He's harvesting souls, bringing people to Himself through His death. Jesus says in verse 25, He who loves His life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
To love your life means to care more about it than about God and His will. To hate your life means to care more about God and His will than about your own life. We find an example of this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. In other words, we might word it this way. Your next fill in the blank. If you live for yourself, then that's all you'll ever have. But if you live for Jesus, then you'll forever have it all. If you live only for yourself, that's all you're going to end up with. But if you live for Jesus, then you'll forever have it all because we'll be with Him in heaven for all of eternity. The saints mentioned in Hebrews here, they died to themselves. They died to what they wanted to do in their flesh. And instead, they lived for God and they lived for His promises in eternity. And that is the example we want to follow. You see, the Christian who dies to himself or herself, they're going to ask themselves questions like these. Is this what God wants me to do? Or does this line up with God's Word? They'll ask questions like, does this bring glory to me or does it bring glory to God? You see, those are the questions we're going to ask if we are a believer who wants to die to our flesh and live for Jesus. Jesus continues in verse 26. He says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, in him him my Father will honor. In other words, to honor and serve Jesus is to honor and serve God the Father. And He will reward us for our faith. And we don't look for those rewards here on earth. We look for them in heaven. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's amazing here as we get a glimpse into Jesus' heart. As he's looking towards the cross and the crucifixion, he admits that his soul is troubled, showing that he does not look forward to the physical pain, to the mockery. He doesn't look forward to the spiritual pain of taking our sins upon himself. It's interesting that since Jesus is God and He is all-powerful, think about this, Jesus could have gone to the cross and done some miracle of numbing His nerves so that He didn't experience the pain, right? He could have endured the cross without actually suffering the pain. If I was God, I'd be all over that, right? And yet Jesus didn't do that. He felt all of it. He endured all of it. And again, He did it for you. And He did it for me. He did it because that's the reason He came. And He says He's about glorifying 
the Father's name. You see, this is dying to self. As Jesus recognizes what he would rather do, and yet he surrendered to the Father's will nonetheless. It's okay for you and I to recognize what we would rather do. And yet, if we want to die to our flesh and serve Jesus, then we not only recognize what we'd rather do, but then we say, but I'm not going to give in to that. I'm not going to pursue that. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Now, quick tangent here. I'm not talking about, you know, honey nut Cheerios or regular Cheerios. Lord, which one? You know, I, I want the sugar, but it doesn't sound very spiritual. It's probably more spiritual if I get the less sugar, right? That's not a big deal, right? We have grace. Praise the Lord for His grace. But when it comes to things that God talks about in His Word, sin issues, when we seek the Lord for wisdom, that's what we're talking about. When we say, okay, Lord, I know what I would rather do, but Lord, not my will, but Yours be done. Verse 28 continues, He'd already said, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. So God the Father audibly speaks here. And the people hear it, but they're not really sure what it was or where it came from. And Jesus says, look, this voice wasn't spoken for my sake, but for yours. This was again another testimony of God the Father telling the people, this is my son. This is who he says he is. Believe in him. Now verse 31, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Again, what's the time we're talking about here? It's the cross. The time of the crucifixion. And Jesus says, this is the time. The time of the cross is going to be the judgment of this world. The time of the cross is going to cast the ruler of this world out. You see, Jesus would be lifted up on the cross to die, paying for the sins of the world. So, the world is judged on whether or not they believe in Jesus. That's the dividing factor between the saved and the lost. We're not judged for being good or bad. We're judged for having Jesus or not having Jesus. That's why Jesus says now is the time that the world, the judgment of the world, because it all comes down to the cross, believing in Jesus or not. Jesus also mentioned how the ruler of this world would be cast out, and the ruler of this world is Satan. Think about that. The ruler of this world is Satan. We look at so much of the effects of our own sin in the world. And then we look at the effects of just the fact that we live in a fallen world. And then on top of that, Satan is the current ruler of the world. It's sad to me when I hear non-believers say, well, I don't believe in God because look at all the evil in the world. It's so backwards. And yet that's just another technique of Satan where the only time a non-believer will believe in God is when they're blaming God for the things that sin and Satan are responsible for. But remember, even though Satan is the current temporary ruler of the world, 
Satan is like a dog on one of those retractable leashes. Right? He can only go so far, and when God pushes the button down, he goes, and he stops. Because he doesn't have total freedom. Satan is on a leash. He's got some ability, some power, some authority, and yet it is all limited. I've even got a real-life picture of one of the forms Satan likes to take. Usually he likes to take the form of any cat, but today it's, it's, it's the chihuahua, right? Jesus is in control, even while Satan is the temporary ruler of the world. And Jesus says, now is the time that the ruler of this world will be cast out. Why? Because again, it goes back to the cross. Look at this, the next fill in the blank. When Jesus went to the cross, Satan was defeated. When Jesus went to the cross, Satan was defeated. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because I like how they word it. It says, He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, that is when he took all the the list of the things that you and I have done wrong, the things that we are guilty of. And Satan would go through that and say, Jared did this, and then he did that, and then he did that. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, I did. And yet... Jesus, when he went to the cross, he paid for our sins. So we took that list and he nailed it to the cross. So Satan's empty-handed now. It's like he's got weapons, but they're full of blanks. He can make some noise, but he can't really attack us because Jesus is our victory. That is why Jesus was defeated, sorry, Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. That's why the ruler of this world has been cast out. And so, verse 32, Jesus says, and I, If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. When Jesus says, lifted up, all the Jews during that time would have understood he's talking about on the cross. That was kind of a a phrase used talking about being crucified. And so verse 34, the people answered him, we have heard from the law, that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You see, the people were confused because they knew the Old Testament spoke of the Messiah having an everlasting kingdom. Usually when I talk about everlasting, I think it means forever, right? That's why they're confused. They obviously missed the passages, like in Isaiah 53, that spoke of the Messiah's suffering and being cut off from the land of the living. Again, they were still thinking political kingdom. They were thinking, okay, wow, if Jesus is not just going to be our king, but he's our Messiah, then we're going to be delivered from Rome forever. It's going to be great. So let's go, Jesus. I'll get my sword. Let's do it right now. And then Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to die on the cross. And they say, wait, what? I don't remember that part in our plans of overthrowing Rome. Verse 35, Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. This was Jesus' last words to the public. He's going to share a lot more, but it's going to be in private to his disciples. This is Jesus' last words to the public, and they essentially said, Believe while you still have the opportunity. Believe before it's too late. In verses 37 through 43, we read about the unbelief of many. Verse 37, it says, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. This is ironic because So many of the Jews that rejected Jesus, their rejection of Him actually fulfilled yet more Messianic prophecy. It's also, we we look at all the miracles that Jesus did, and yet they still did not believe because we read in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, so then faith comes by miracles. No, it doesn't say that. See, faith comes by the holy tingles. No, it doesn't say that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith comes as we read the Word, as we hear the Word. That's what faith is born from. Notice that verse 37 says that the people did not believe in Jesus. But verse 39, it says they could not believe in Jesus. Well, which one is it? I would say yes. It's both. You see, it's the idea that if somebody rejects Jesus enough times, then God gives them over into their unbelief. Here the Jews did not believe, despite all of the teaching that Jesus gave them, despite all of the signs and miracles that they witnessed. They did not believe that Jesus was who He said He was. And so because of that, God handed them over into further their unbelief, blinding their eyes, hardening their hearts. To me, that begs the question, well, how how do we know? How do we know if if my friend or my family member or my neighbor or my coworker is still struggling with that unbelief or if the Lord's hardened their hearts because of that continued rejection? Your next fill in the blank. Our job is not to know if someone will ever believe in Jesus. Our job is to share the gospel and pray for them. Our job is to continue to witness who Jesus is, to invite them to believe, and to pray that God would soften their hearts. Only the Lord knows where they're at, and only the Lord knows when and if they'll be saved. Verse 42. We've talked about all the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus, and yet, verse 42, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. That was the Jewish church. 
they recognized that if they believed in Jesus, then they'd be kicked out of the Jewish church, no longer able to worship at the synagogue. They'd be excommunicated. They'd be exiled. 4, verse 43. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. What a terrible thing to be known for. If God were to describe your heart, my heart, would He say, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God? Think about the difference between those two praises. The praise of man focuses on the external, the actions. The praise of God focuses on the internal, the heart. The praise of man is instant, but it's fleeting. The praise of God is delayed for heaven, but eternal. The praise of man is loud and brings glory to you. The praise of God is quiet and it brings glory back to God. The praise of man leaves us hungry for more and is a struggle to maintain. The praise of God satisfies and we find rest in His love and grace for us. And so we should ask ourselves, in my family, at my job, with my church, with my friends, on social media, am I seeking the praise of man or of God? Can you imagine those who will be in hell trying to comfort themselves with the fact that, well, at least while I was on earth, a lot of people thought I was pretty cool. They liked my jokes. They thought I was a fun guy. That's not going to matter. It's not going to matter one bit. David prayed in Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Life is extremely short. May we die to our flesh, looking to the harvest, which is eternal life in heaven. We're going to save the rest of this chapter for next week, but I want to close with a poem written by C.T. Studd. He was a missionary. And you know it's good because his last name is Studd, so it's going to be amazing, right? You can read it on the screen with me. He says, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, 
When self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, t'will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life, t'will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's die to ourselves. Die to our flesh. And live for Him. He's worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for giving us eternal life for any and all who would believe in You. Lord, if there are any here today or watching online that have not yet put their faith in You, Lord, I pray today would be that day that they would not wait until it's too late, that they would surrender their lives to You. And Lord, for all of us as Christians, God, would You give us the strength and wisdom we need to every day die to our flesh, die to what we want, and instead live a life focused on, Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I bring glory to you? How can I represent your name on this world? Lord, we're so thankful for your love. Thank you that you are in control. Lord, we give our lives to you. Glorify your name. Magnify your kingdom, which is an eternal kingdom in heaven. Lord, fill us afresh with your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand. Let's worship the Lord together.